This message comes from NPR sponsor, Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, showcasing flowering shrubs and evergreens, trialed and tested by expert horticulturists to ensure success in gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. If you frequently listen to shows and podcasts like The Pulse, you've probably heard ads for a company called BetterHelp. They are the top advertiser in the podcasting world. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Thanks to our partners at BetterHelp for this episode. So BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers... BetterHelp is an online therapy platform, one of many. There's also Talkspace, Cerebral, and others. This model really took off during the pandemic. The main selling point is easy access, like having a therapist in your pocket, help and advice anytime you need it. It's what brought Simileolua Adebaju to one of these therapy apps in 2020. She was in desperate need of some support after her Nigerian fusion restaurant in San Francisco was destroyed in a fire. It was a huge loss for me, honestly. I felt like I was just seeing my life's work just like go up in flames, literally. She had first tried to find a therapist through her insurance company, but they told her it would be six to eight weeks before they could get her an appointment. So she downloaded a therapy app instead and reached out for help. I specifically signed up to this because I had a traumatic event happen to me. I'm trying to get past and I really talked to somebody about it. Similea Lua was matched with a therapist within two days. They started texting and really connected. She's still with the same therapist two years later. It's really great, honestly, because it feels like you are able to instantly communicate your feelings. And I think that's what really resonated with me. And the fact that it was text, it didn't feel so formal. It just felt like I was texting a friend, but really it was a licensed professional. During the same time these apps really took off, therapists with brick-and-mortar offices were also going virtual, mostly because of the pandemic. And they realized their clients liked it. A lot of folks prefer the idea of not having to battle traffic and go into an office. That's psychologist Charles Jacob. He says clients canceled far less frequently. Because, you know, especially if you're working with, like, couples and families and things like that, they no longer have to get babysitters. They no longer have to worry about orchestrating schedules. Uh, In some cases, they don't even have to be in the same place. Like, if they're both at different spaces, they can both zoom in at the same time. A lot of his clients wanted to keep their sessions virtual even after COVID restrictions eased. And Charles eventually decided to give up his office space. Therapists offering virtual sessions instead of meeting face-to-face is one thing. But mental health platforms like BetterHelp and Talkspace seem to really want to revolutionize the concept of accessibility on demand. On this episode, online options are changing the field of mental health, shaking up the way people find and use services, not just for counseling, but for diagnosis and prescriptions. When does this work well and when does it not? And what are the larger issues it raises about the field as a whole? Mm 
First up, let's take a closer look at these therapy platforms from the perspective of people who work in the field of mental health. What's their take on this? Of course, therapy being more accessible sounds like a great thing. Amy Kemp heard about BetterHelp on one of her favorite podcasts. She's a therapist in Pennsylvania, and the concept appealed to her at first. And I actually was kind of supportive of it at that point in thinking that it was a way for people to access care, you know, that couldn't either afford traditional like private practice therapy or, you know, could do something a little bit more different. But when she looked into it as a potential job opportunity for herself, she found horror stories on Facebook groups and forums. Users and therapists complaining about low-quality therapy and poor business practices. It came up in one of the, like, the therapist groups that I'm in that somebody was notified that their therapist had died and that they basically just like got refunded that week and another therapist will be in touch with you shortly. It seemed so corporate, so devoid of empathy, it was off-putting. And the membership model that BetterHelp uses, where people pay a weekly fee for therapy services that they can access at any time, that made no sense to Amy. Like that, when I started seeing like, oh, people can text you and call you and try to message you day and night. Like that's not how therapy works. We're trying to help build resiliency. It's a common selling point with online subscription therapy platforms that a therapist is going to be available whenever you need them, which Amy argues is the opposite of what therapy is supposed to do. You're supposed to get well enough to deal with your issues on your own without having to rely on a therapist. It, it really, you need that space to be able to know, okay, I can start to trust myself again in this issue, in my depression, in my anxiety, in my grief. I can, I can actually not create this dependency, this need on this other person, this tool, even my phone at that point, right? If you're kind of getting attached to that. But she says what really worried a lot of therapists are privacy issues. The way some of these apps can track user behavior across all kinds of different platforms. There's no reason that Facebook needs to know every time somebody logs in to to say, hey, I need some support around something. Like, I, it just doesn't even make sense. And then knowing that they get that type of information is really completely unethical. Therapy is supposed to be built on confidentiality, trust, and privacy. The things that are said in this space, we don't tell anybody else. So this type of thing was completely alien to a lot of therapists. That somebody can see when you're on the app or when you're like available, but not really available because you're just checking something. It's, it's very intrusive and really, really disturbing. But despite all of these concerns, lots and lots of therapists work for these platforms. We spoke with one. We're calling her Cassandra because she's worried about getting sued for talking about her experience working for better help. She's been a therapist for about a decade, but a sudden health problem last year meant she could no longer work in an office. Then a colleague reached out to her about an opportunity. You have your independent license. You can, I know you want to work from home. I work for better help right now. And, you know, maybe that would be a good option for you. So we talked about it. I didn't know this at the time, but BetterHelp offers therapists like two, three hundred dollars to recruit other therapists. So he wasn't coming at it from like the kindness of his heart or anything. Cassandra didn't bite. Instead, she looked on job boards, searching for remote therapist positions, and there seemed to be a ton. 
Like the company was called Gotham. There was another one called Guideline. Then there's like another one called Velocity. And like, I didn't know that these were all linked to better help. Like I had no idea. They had different names, but shared one goal to find therapists to work for better help. She finally found a remote job that seemed like a good fit and it wasn't better help or so she thought. He told me actually once we had a phone call. That's the thing. I we had emails back and forth, never said anything in the emails until I had a phone call with this guy. It was yet another better help recruiter. Cassandra finally felt like, all right, why not? Let me give this a shot. She did a two-week onboarding, sent in her licenses, filled out her qualifications, what types of issues she treats, like substance abuse, trauma, and mood disorders. And then the app started to match her with patients and refer them to her. There was even an option to accelerate her referrals. So I said, okay, the, I guess the faster I build up my caseload, the better for me, I guess. So I turned on the accelerate. I was getting referrals left and right from people that I would never treat. Like I got a referral from someone in Puerto Rico who was struggling with like pedophilia issues that I was like, whoa, 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 I'm not touching that. I don't have the training. I'm not saying that person doesn't deserve therapy. I'm just not the therapist for them. So I don't have the training in that. It was an early red flag, but she wanted to give this new job a chance. And even after turning away patients with issues way outside of her expertise, Cassandra soon had an unwieldy caseload. I believe I had like 30, 32 maybe. I would get messages all like all hours of the day. And BetterHelp does this thing where if you don't respond within 24 hours and you leave a few unresponded, they actually suspend your account. So I had to respond within 24 hours. So I would be like, like I would be done with a, with one client and then I'd be like on the app responding to messages, just responding, 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 like sending out worksheets, like doing all this other stuff because if I didn't, I would get penalized for it. This was not at all what she had been told by the recruiter who had promised her that if she worked 30 hours a week at their hourly rates, she would make about $100,000 a year. Which to me, I was like, oh, wow, that's awesome. But here's the catch that I did not know until I started working for BetterHelp. This is the trick. For you to get to 30 hours a week, you would have to see about 40 to 45 clients. That is an impossible caseload if you're trying to be a good therapist. Cassandra says the problem here is the way BetterHelp reimburses therapists for their time. The way they calculated it is they each session is 45 minutes long. And you only get paid for the actual therapy session time. Cassandra says in other settings, therapists get paid for the full hour, even if the actual session doesn't last 60 minutes, to account for note-taking afterwards. That note-taking is a big deal in the traditional therapy world. But Cassandra says it wasn't even an afterthought here. You're not required to do notes, which is kind of shady. You should do notes. I'd, I always did notes. The significance of notes, basically, if you don't document it, it didn't happen. And so if you don't take your notes, if you don't do your clinical notes, first of all, you're not documenting the, the client's progress. You're not documenting what they're working on. You're not documenting, you know, just um, what is the what, what is your clinical intervention? I mean, therapy isn't just like talking to someone. You know, you're working through a lot of really difficult mental health issues. 
So Cassandra took notes anyway, even though she wasn't on the clock. And if clients needed more than the 45 minutes, she stayed on the line. But she didn't get paid for any of this. Oh, I felt so trapped. Like, I wanted out. She felt trapped because she had all of these clients now and she felt responsible for them. And one of the biggest principles of the ethical code is you cannot abandon a client. So what that means is, you know, you've been working with someone for like a few months and then all of a sudden you drop them. Well, that's wrong. You're causing them damage. You're causing them harm. In the end, she told her clients that she was going to be leaving in a few months. She told them to prepare to find a new therapist or maybe to see her remotely. But she was not going to stay with BetterHelp. I think clients don't understand the pressure that BetterHelp puts on the therapist, you know? Cassandra says the way the pay is structured incentivizes bad therapy and bad therapists. I know that there are like some crappy therapists out there. I'm not saying there isn't, right? I'm, I'm not, I know there are some people that do very unethical things, but the way it's designed, the way their pay structure is, the pressure that they put on you, it puts you in a position to maybe do things that are unethical if you really need the money. We wanted to get a sense of the big picture here. Is this just one disgruntled employee? Is the chatter on message boards just sour grapes? Therapists upset about a disruption to their field? We reached out to BetterHelp and one of its top competitors called Talkspace for comment. Neither agreed to go on the record for an interview. So we started to reach out to lots of professional psychological organizations and researchers, but nobody felt like they could comment or had any real expertise on how these platforms work and how they treat therapists. Then, finally, somebody agreed to shed some light on all of this, psychologist Ben Miller. That speaks to one of the issues that I think you surfaced, is the lack of transparency in what actually is happening on some of these platforms. But Ben has some insight into them from his last job, chairing a philanthropic foundation that supports mental health access. In that, my capacity is running a foundation. When you have resources to give and people are looking to raise capital, especially capital that can come from the nonprofit sector, you're going to try and sell your goods. And so um, I routinely, weekly sometimes, would get hit up by somebody who had a new app that they thought was going to change the world. He doesn't name names, but he says a lot of Silicon Valley types came into his office hoping to raise capital for their telemental health apps. He says early on, a lot of mental health apps were just that apps. They weren't connected to an actual therapist. They were about behaviors, telling you to take deep breaths or write in your journal or make an inventory of triggers. And you would do the therapy work on your own. The problem was data showed that users abandoned these apps pretty quickly, many after just one try. What they realized is because of that retention issue, many people weren't using it, that they needed to have that relational element baked in. So they started creating networks of therapists. They needed actual people, human therapists, in order to make sure that clients kept using the service. This created a bit of a rush on therapists. These apps suddenly needed a lot of flesh and blood professionals to function. Ben says hiring is competitive. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a competition out there for sure. Remember, uh, there are only a certain number of clinicians out there. We have a workforce crisis in this country as it relates to individuals that deliver mental health and substance use services. That existed prior to COVID. And Ben says the pandemic has increased demand even further. There's never going to be enough clinicians. Just remember that. I mean, one of the fundamental policy issues that I still work on is that you know, states or even the federal government, they want to have, have more clinicians and we're never going to have enough. It can take years of schooling and licensing and interning to become a therapist. And it's expensive. And I do think it's something that a lot of these companies probably didn't factor into their business model when they were initially conceptualizing their asks. By their asks, he's talking about the way these services promise a therapist available whenever you need them, via text or email or chat. They were asking the same limited pool of therapists to treat more people and to do it more frequently. Ben says it's a perfect recipe for burnout and low-quality therapy. Still, he says these subscription services work for lots of people. They are convenient and can be more accessible than finding a therapist on your own. He says the goal of democratizing access to mental health care is a noble one. But he has a different idea of how to get there. Ben says there is no way to quickly increase the number of available therapists. But he says we can train more people to use parts of the therapist toolbox. So there is nothing magical about a cognitive behavioral intervention, okay? Nothing magical about it. it it's grounded in the science. We know what the, the recipe is. Teaching other individuals and helping them see how they can deliver effective interventions to one another is how you disrupt this backlog of never having enough. People anywhere could learn how to do this. The model has become known as community-initiated care. It's care in community by community for community. It's care that we give barbers who you probably have a more profound relationship with than many other people in your life the skills to know how to address whatever issue that you might be facing. Ben says this model envisions lay people in a town, city, or village who are trained in the basics of some kind of therapy, and they become an access point for their family, friends, and neighbors. Can you imagine walking to downtown Philly and you see one of your brothers that you hang out with on the weekend, and they're sitting on a bench, and you've just had a really poor day, a really bad day, and you sit down, and they help you through that? Like, to me, that's the future of mental health, man. I mean, that's where we got to go. Ben won't say much more, but he has some new venture cooking at the moment that he hopes will make that happen. We're talking about online therapy and therapy apps. Coming up, when the promise of easy access doesn't hold up. It's in the website is telling me that I'm too messed up to get help from them. That's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about 
big changes that are happening in the world of mental health. Therapy apps promise easy access, anytime, connect wherever you are, which brings up a tricky issue in terms of therapy, licensing for the providers. Usually, they're required to be licensed in the state where their client is. I talked about that with Charles Jacob. He's a psychologist and professor at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. He told me the whole thing with the licenses is complicated. There are so many different licenses. There's the psychologists, there's the marriage and family therapists, there's the social workers, there's the professional counselors, there's the psychiatrists. And every separate faction has its own requirements to meet standards for licensing. And in addition to that, it differs greatly from state to state. What is the thinking behind these requirements? Is it because each state wants to make sure their mental health workforce is up to snuff or there are different laws in each state as it pertains to mental health? Like, what is the thinking? Hey, beats me. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it sure would make it a lot easier if we just had one sort of national license for everybody. But... You know, I, I think that sort of speaks to American government in some way, right? Like they, they want to uh, afford states autonomy as far as, you know, specific procedural things that matter to them. To be honest, I don't know why the requirements in Rhode Island vary substantially from those in Mississippi. Yeah, it seems arbitrary. Yeah, <laughs> I hate to say that out loud, <laughs> but that does seem like a, a fair assessment, yeah. During the pandemic, some of the rules and requirements were changed to allow people to practice telepsychology across states. Charles says there's some momentum to have more uniformity in general with licensing and credentials, but these conversations are still in the early stages. During the pandemic, I was very surprised by how uh, quickly everything changed. Uh, in insurances were now accepting uh, uh, online services for, for reimbursement, and uh, they, they still are. And as far as like requirements for continuing education for therapists, we can now do all of that online or virtually, which is uh, uh, something that was never the case uh, prior to 2020. Charles says he's heard a lot of complaints about therapy platforms, but he thinks they speak to broader issues in the field, not just the virtual setting. The short list is like online therapists missing appointments and rescheduling. I don't have any numbers on that, but it happens all the time, I promise. Like you, you don't make a lot of dough in our profession and folks are overscheduling themselves constantly. People talked about like not clicking with their virtual therapist because they were very off put by their behaviors. Like they're, they're eating during some of these sessions. They seem distracted. They plugged their books and their webinars instead of listening to client problems. I, I remember when I was in grad school, I saw an analyst. It was part of, a, a, you know, just a recommended part of training. And he would eat Subway sandwiches during our sessions, you know. <laughs> like, I, I still remember clients telling me that they refused to schedule with previous therapists because they did weird stuff like, you know, they had everybody take off their shoes and sit in beanbags for sessions or things like that. We, mental health folks, we're an interesting bunch. And that, that doesn't change if you, you put us on Zoom. 
When looking for a counselor, Charles says the most important thing to consider, whether it's in person or online, is a good fit between the client and the therapist. And usually it takes a little bit of time to, to really know whether this is going to gel or not. But, you know, that's mostly what we found is that it's – the demographic stuff, the research on that is confusing. Um, trying to find, like, do I need to match with someone exactly? I, the, the jury's out on that. Technique, theory, uh, that's all over the place. Most of it seems to suggest that all theoretical orientations seem to have uh, something that they bring to the table. Really what matters most is do you feel comfortable enough to meet with this person regularly and share what you're struggling with in the hopes that uh, that will help you cope with it more effectively? And I guess, am I getting better? Yeah. Do I feel better after I leave? Yeah, and that's hard to measure, right? You know, it's one of the, the real damnably complicated parts of all this. Like, wait, what does it mean for me to get better in all of this? Like with couples counseling, what, what does it mean to get better? You know, in that case, like if I, you and your partner go to see a couple's therapist, like how do we measure success? Is it that you stayed together? No, not necessarily, because sometimes people go to counseling to, to separate, you know, and that's the outcome of counseling and that could be deemed a success. Is it that we are less depressed and less anxious? Well, no, especially if we separated, that would be more anxious and more depressed. And especially if we you know, ended up talking about some heavier stuff, which would be the intention of counseling. It's probably going to increase those things as well. What constitutes success for all of this can be a tough thing to quantify in some ways. Charles says overall he has mixed feelings about therapy going online. He recognizes that for most of his clients, it's just much more accessible and convenient. I did a survey of all my clients and asked them, hey, who wants to go back in the office? And everyone said, no, I don't want to. And there was no reason to, to keep a brick-and-mortar office at that point, so I just started seeing everybody virtually. But for Charles, something is really missing when he's connecting through a screen rather than talking face-to-face. -face. I would be lying if I said it was as engaging as being in the room with folks. It doesn't have quite the same appeal. Charles Jacob is a psychologist and a professor at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about changes in the field of mental health and people looking for therapy services online. For Diane Crookham-Johnson, it was convenience that drew her to this setting. She's in southeast Iowa, and she says she would have had to wait about six weeks to get her first in-person appointment with a therapist. In the part of Iowa I'm in, we just don't have enough providers. But as a state, even in the urban areas, it's a problem in Iowa. She likes the ease of access and the fact that it doesn't always have to be a whole session. And sometimes it's just one email, one message. And, you know, that kind of takes care of things, gets you refocused instead of waiting two or three weeks for an appointment. So it doesn't matter where I'm at. I can talk to her from anywhere. And I've been pleasantly surprised. It's at least as good as what I've had in person and perhaps even better. It just is funny to me. I have no idea what my therapist looks like. She doesn't know what I look like. I don't know anything about her other than that she's a therapist. And that's worked out just fine. She also says these platforms bring more confidentiality. Diane says in small rural towns, there's a lot of stigma around seeking mental health care and a lot of eyeballs on you at all times. 
if you're sitting in a waiting room in a small town, somebody's going to walk through that you know, and that's intimidating for some people. And that's another thing that you don't have to deal with. Yeah, I wish going to counseling was like going to the dentist. Nobody cares if they're seen at the dentist, but that isn't the reality right now. And BetterHelp really offers a more confidential setting for that wait and coming in and out of the office. These apps seem to work for lots of people, especially in a quick hit kind of way. A text message, a call to help ease your mind, or just get some encouragement. But what are their limits? Our next story is about a woman who thought the accessibility of therapy apps was a godsend. But that promise did not hold up. Grant Hill has more. Gabby Rogat decided to look into therapy again at the beginning of the pandemic. I was working from home and I was struggling with suicidal thoughts. Gabby is a high school teacher in a border town in Mexico. And those thoughts weren't exactly new, just resurfacing. She grew up in a household with physical and emotional abuse. She had tried therapy 10 years before, but never found the right therapist, somebody she clicked with. There was even one who, frankly, was very judgmental. In fact, the couple of sessions I had with this person were very traumatizing in themselves. That experience turned her off to the whole idea of formal therapy. Still, she realized that her mental health was getting worse, that she needed professional help. But Gabby says it was really difficult to find a therapist in Mexico then, a problem that persists to this day. The country is experiencing a shortage of mental health professionals. There are long wait times. People tell you, go find help, reach out, you can do it. But when you do that, there's nothing. It's like a good thing to tweet about. Oh, check on your friends. Uh, you can do it. Ask for help. And you, and I guess people feel like heroes because they are tweeting that and they feel like they did their good deed of the day. She was seeing ads for therapy apps. And even though they were based in the U.S., they seemed available to her. She decided to try BetterHelp. When I saw those ads, I said, maybe this is the thing that could help me. And Gabby liked the virtual setting, not just because of the convenience. And I figure because it's online, there's a bit of distance between the therapist and myself. And maybe that could be helpful for me to slowly grow trust. I don't know. If a new therapist started making her feel uncomfortable, she could just end the call, log off, be done with it. So she went to sign up. There was this series of questions to assess whether or not they could help me. BetterHelp's questionnaire asked about her stress levels, whether she had thought about harming herself. While I was answering, I was reflecting on, oh yeah, this doesn't look good. <laughs> Seeing her honest answers right there on the screen, somewhere outside her own head for the first time, it hit her just how serious things had gotten. There was a bit of self-awareness there. Like, okay, this doesn't look so hot. <laughs> and, and in the end, they were like, oh, we are sorry, but we can't provide the services you need. It seems you Gabby said the website told her she needed urgent attention, something BetterHelp 
could not provide. It seems the website is telling me that I'm too messed up to get the help from them. And that was both hilarious, but also, in a way, heartbreaking. Gabby knew the service was just trying to be responsible, not simply make customers out of those who needed critical, urgent care. The site provided her with suicide hotline numbers, but they were all based in the U.S. They would not work for Gabby. She looked up hotlines based in Mexico. I found some, but they weren't working. And I had to really, really dig down to find new ones that were functional. The search took a couple of hours. And during that time, Gabby sat there, strangely amused by just how sorry all of this was. How difficult. I know it sounds weird, but I was having fun with this because it was, oh my God, what is happening? This is so funny. The dark humor eventually subsided. Gabby started looking for new ways to feel better, ways she could afford. It was like, okay, this is not available to me. What can I do then? She began writing under a pen name, self-help mostly. Exercise, weight loss, it didn't make much of a difference for her state of mind. I think I was trying to fake it. Then she started opening up about her struggles with mental health to her readers, hearing about their struggles too. Actually, reading testimonies from people who have dealt with these issues themselves has been more helpful for me. Connecting with regular people online. No crazy fees, no waiting rooms, just someone on the other end, hoping their story helps fill a gap. That was Grant Hill reporting. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about changes in the field of mental health. So far, we heard about therapy platforms. Now, let's look into online services that aim to diagnose people and get them access to medications. Megan Codis Bodie was considering medication for her ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And for that, she needed an official diagnosis. That part was so complicated, it felt like she was starring in her own circus act. You set up all these hoops, and then you add hoops, and then you set the hoops on fire. And then right at the end, you move the last hoop before I can even jump through it. Megan took test after test. She scheduled appointment after appointment, and she had to wait for her insurance company to greenlight things every step of the way. It is sort of invalidating to... To have to go through this much rigorous testing, it's not like I'm seeking a heart medication or some kind of really severe thing. I mean, this is a severe thing. It's, it's hard to function in life just executing everyday tasks. But this is ADHD. I just feel like it didn't have to be like this. This is a frustration many people with ADHD have experienced. But then, during the pandemic, a much faster path to diagnosis popped up with online assessments. They promised convenience and easy access, but now critics say these sites are making things too easy and that they're causing overprescription of ADHD medications. Nicole Curry looked into what's going on and how we got here. If you want to understand the present, 
you need to know the past. Let me give you a little, little bit of a historical narrative from my perspective on ADHD. More than a decade ago, doctors were becoming very comfortable with diagnosing ADHD in children and adults. And the typical medication that they prescribed to ease the symptoms was Adderall, a stimulant. But there was one problem. Adderall is one molecule away from meth, you know, from crystal meth, a pretty potent drug. That blue and sometimes orange pill comes with the risk of abuse and addiction. A few things started to happen. Patients began asking for higher doses, showing signs of addiction. Adderall became known as the college campus study drug. The number of people who used Adderall exploded. And by 2011, the Food and Drug Administration announced a shortage of the medication, which derailed the lives of those who really needed it. This chain of events led to increased scrutiny and investigations. So if you were a doctor who was prescribing Adderall, you were putting yourself on a list of people that could that the feds could come knocking and say, well, what made you decide to medicate this person? Sanam Hafiz is telling me this story. She is a neuropsychologist in New York City, and she has been diagnosing ADHD for more than 20 years. Sanam says that health officials were looking for signs of excessive prescribing. So then what I saw was a tidal wave of neurologists and psychiatrists sending people to me and saying, get a proper diagnosis so I can basically cover my butt. (laughs) You know, I can cover my rear end. Everyone, doctors, insurance companies, they now all wanted to make sure a diagnosis wasn't amiss. Psychologists like Sanam were completing additional evaluations for physicians who thought a patient had ADHD. And their process could be long and more involved. Patients often had to take multiple tests, go to therapy, talk about their childhood. Sometimes they even had to have a friend or family member vouch for them, sort of tell the healthcare provider, yeah, they've been like this all of their life. So adults will tell me, you know, it took me 10 years to finish a bachelor's degree. Or I I knew I was brighter or more capable than the jobs I always got. I couldn't stay at a job. I had, you know, uh, friends or, or relationships that fell apart because I couldn't really pull it together for different reasons. Sanam says overall, this more involved process was a good thing because psychologists like herself were able to really investigate and weed out other conditions like a learning disability. Is it a reading issue? Is it a comprehension issue? Or is it that you just can't focus long enough to comprehend or register what you're reading? Just because you take longer to do things doesn't always mean that you have ADHD. It could take time, but Sanam felt it was necessary to get things right. But at least they could say to someone coming in to see them that, you know, that you actually had an evaluation. And then nine years after that 2011 Adderall shortage, the pandemic happened. And then came COVID and then came the online platforms. Sanam is talking about online platforms like Cerebral or Done and many more that began advertising their websites on social media platforms like TikTok during the pandemic. They used catchy slogans to target people who had trouble concentrating. Focusing better, better time management, less anxiety, get affordable ADHD treatment. ADHD is complicated, but getting help shouldn't be. 
or who maybe had another condition like obesity. Those who live by impulse eat by impulse. Obesity is five times more prevalent among adults with ADHD. These sites sort of felt like deja vu for Sanam. And we're back there again. So we've seen this before. Getting an ADHD diagnosis was now easier than ever. While I think it's amazing that people have access to, you know, mental health on this platform, and especially during COVID where people couldn't just go in and and see a doctor and and people were working remote hours and all this stuff. But there is no way you can really assess ADHD by an online screening tool. The sites generally work like this. Patients fill out a self-reported assessment and sometimes chat with the provider depending on the site. The provider then reviews that assessment and draws up a treatment plan. Treatment can include therapy and a prescription for a stimulant like Adderall. These sites said that they followed careful procedures and worked with providers that were well-versed in the ADHD field. And at first, it seemed like they were doing a due diligence while creating an accessible path to diagnosis and medication. But soon, providers like Sanam noticed the number of adults requesting ADHD care had exploded. The number of people that come to me because they saw a TikTok on autism or ADHD has tripled. The number of people who are on medication or diagnosed from an online platform uh, has tripled. And some people believe that eventually led to another issue. There is a national shortage of the drug Adderall, which is used to treat attention deficit disorders. Manufacturing delays, low supply, and rising demand has left those who rely on the drug every day unsure about how or when they will be able to... And this is why the FDA knows that the online platforms like Cerebral are primarily responsible for the shortage. Another Adderall shortage. This one started last October. Many people focused on one of the three reasons for the shortage, the increase in demand. Some blamed the telehealth websites. Pharmacists like CVS and Walmart turned away anyone with a done or cerebral prescription. News stories implied that many of these sites followed a model prioritizing profits over healthcare, charging patients a monthly fee to continue treatment. And the Department of Justice launched an investigation into Cerebral last year for advertising quick prescriptions for Adderall and Xanax. Soon, these sites began to fade into the dark past of bad pandemic decisions. And Cerebral has stopped prescribing controlled substances like Adderall to new patients. So how did history end up repeating itself? Is an online diagnosis for ADHD just a bad idea, especially for adults who report their own symptoms? Is it something that inevitably leads to overdiagnosis, misdiagnosis, and overprescribing? This is where the story gets complicated because the issues go deeper. First of all, many people can get a quick diagnosis from an in-person provider, like Alex Wild, who lives in Florida. Um, I just went to my primary care physician and told him, um, you know, some specific symptoms that I experienced and that I felt, you know, pretty strongly that this was an appropriate diagnosis. And he wrote me a prescription. Alex was diagnosed that day after only one conversation with his doctor. He doesn't remember the exact time of their talk, but he says it was long. 
And Alex knows his process was shorter than most. He doesn't know exactly why, but he guesses it was because he wasn't too interested in a high dosage of Adderall. There may be other people in different circumstances who have trouble, like if they've had bad addiction issues in the past, could see why people might be a little more hesitant and want to make, you know, go through a little more rigorous testing before. So what is the best or standard procedure to diagnose ADHD in adults? It turns out answering that question depends on who you're asking. Diagnosing adult ADHD is quite vague. I think part of the problem has been there hasn't been an explicit set of um, guidelines or requirements for what people are supposed to follow when diagnosing and treating ADHD in adults. And because of that, it's been kind of like whatever people want to do. That's Maggie Sibley. She's a researcher at Seattle's Children's Hospital. Maggie says that there are no official guidelines from any official practice organization in the U.S. on how to diagnose ADHD in adults. So you got a good set of guidelines in Europe adopted by the European nations. Canadians have it. Australians have it. There's one in Asia. Um, But for some reason, the United States hasn't done that yet. There are official guidelines on how to diagnose ADHD in children. But uh, we're at a pretty clear consensus across the professional community that um, the manifestations of ADHD in adulthood are unique and need to be researched separately um, from childhood and adolescent manifestations of ADHD. The only resource for adults is in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM-5. It lists the requirements for having ADHD in adulthood. But the requirements are basically the symptoms, not being able to focus or having trouble completing a task. Only 4% of people who screen positive for symptoms on a checklist like that end up having ADHD. That's the key point here is that those checklists just just tell you whether to you should investigate ADHD in the person. They don't tell you if the person has ADHD. An official set of guidelines will show providers how to evaluate someone for ADHD. How many tests should one take and when to start ruling out other conditions, stuff that could span over several appointments. Some of the things the guideline needs to figure out, for example, is how do you ask those questions? Should you ask those questions to the person themselves versus a family member? Should you do it on a paper and pencil rating scale versus a long interview? Should you have a requirement to get a childhood history from a person versus not? So there's a lot of nuts and bolts to exactly how to do it right. Some ADHD-friendly websites and smaller healthcare systems have their own set of guidelines based on years of ADHD research. But their advice is not a general rule of thumb. Without an official set of guidelines, providers will often make their diagnosis at their own discretion. If I'm investigating ADHD in a 48-year-old woman who's coming in for the first time having trouble concentrating, we need to find out what role does aging have in that and menopause, right? Because the cognitive effects of menopause are look a lot like ADHD. And in that case, it could be something hormonal that needs to be addressed and not a stimulant medication. Maggie says these steps may be too costly and time-consuming for online platforms. The companies that we're describing here, they don't have people like that in-house to do that kind of comprehensive care and really rule those things out. In a big hospital system, we do, right? We can send them, you know, to get a physical exam or go to an endocrinologist and get their thyroid looked at. 
Maggie is working on a task force with the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders to create a set of guidelines and best practices, and that's for in-person and online providers. She says the guidelines will take anywhere from 10 months to a year to finish, but Maggie says it's all worth it. A lot of us are very pro-telemedicine. We think that's the future, but it should be done in a way that's compatible with best practices in health. That's all that people are asking for. So it just raises questions when there are models that incentivize providers to not follow best practices. That's why this is like such a big deal. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Curry. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Our intern is Alan Hinich. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.